often called Advent. Uh, if I get that word up on the screen there, uh, Jacob, if that's all right. To, there we go, Advent. Uh, so it's a familiar word, this word Advent. Uh, of course, we know it from our Advent calendars. Um, our one at home, we bought from Aldi. It was about 40 bucks. Uh, and it's got just these little tiny doors. They're actually too small to even put any chocolate in, uh, which is a bit of a bummer. But I did find a couple of other Advent calendars that could be... Uh, well, actually, I don't know if they're an upgrade. Here's one. This is called the Screwdriver Advent Calendar. And so every day, 25 days, you get a new little drill bit. Uh, what do you think, kids? Does that sound pretty good? The Screwdriver Advent Calendar? Yeah? Uh, maybe not. Uh, what about this one? This one's great for parents. The Fitness Advent Calendar. Now, that's just evil, isn't it? Actually, just goes against all the values of this, this season. <laughs> so Advent, we, we know this word from Advent calendars and all that sort of stuff. But it sounds like actually a bit of an odd word, doesn't it? Advent. Does it sound a bit old-fashioned? Sounds maybe even a little bit like Catholic or liturgical or something like that. What does this word actually mean, Advent? Well, if you go back some hundreds and hundreds of years... Uh, you actually find that, that this word uh, in Old Latin sort of had two parts of it. And when they're put together, it means basically a coming or, or like a, an arrival. Uh, we get our word adventure from Advent, which is like the coming of opportunity, the, the coming even of risk and of danger, uh, the coming of, of excitement, the coming of a new journey, the arrival of a hero, adventure. Uh, Advent means arrival or coming, and of course, the coming of Christmas, uh, the coming of presents, uh, but even more than those things, the coming of Jesus. And so at Advent, we reflect on the coming of Jesus. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at Luke 1 and 2, just the first two chapters of Luke, and we're going to be reflecting on the Advent, the coming of Jesus, using these three words, waiting, witnessing, worshipping, waiting, witnessing, worshipping, the advent, the coming of Jesus. We're going to jump into that first word, waiting, today. As we do, how about we pray? Lord God, thank you that you're with us this morning as a church family. Um, we, we want to reflect on um, just the significance of your son and his coming to us. And so, Lord, we pray by the Holy Spirit you would open our eyes to see these things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we consider the advent, the arrival of Jesus, I want to give you a statement. It's easy to take things for granted. Probably that's actually the lesson of this year, isn't it? 2021, it's easy to take things for granted. Things like going to the cafe. Things like just browsing the shops, air and affair, looking around. Things like just even having family around. All these things that we never thought we'd have to stop doing. Yeah, we've had to put them on pause this year, haven't we? And I think we've learned, like, it's so easy to take these things for granted. And just like I was saying to the kids earlier, you know, computers, mobile phones, etc., things that just seem normal, I think that also as Christians, we can be tempted to take things for granted as well. Like the fact that God speaks to us. We can take that for granted. Because, I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, a booming voice from the sky or something, but we have here the Word of God. We as Christians actually believe that these words in this Bible, though they were written by human authors, were actually supervised by God. The Holy Spirit inspired them, and so therefore these are God's word. And so anytime we want, we can open up this book, read these words, and in so doing, hear God speak to us. Anytime we want. We've got a Bible on our shelf. 
We have maybe here a Bible in our hands. We have a mobile phone in our pocket that can access the Bible. And it's so easy to take for granted, isn't it? It's so easy to imagine a world where God wasn't speaking to his people. Just like trying to imagine a world without YouTube or mobile phones or computers. So too, we can take for granted the fact that God has revealed his salvation to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Right? Because, I mean... You know, this, this news about Jesus isn't new. <laughs> it's been around for 2,000 odd years. But there was a time before that. There was a time before people would set up nativity decorations or would have Christmas carols and all these things that remind us of the coming of Jesus. A time before he came. And I wonder if you've ever thought to yourself, what would life be like if God wasn't speaking to us, or if Jesus had not yet come? What would life be like before Jesus came? And Advent takes us back to exactly such a time, almost 2,000 years ago. A time when God's people were waiting for him to speak because he'd been silent for centuries. A time when God's people were waiting for the Saviour to come. And this morning, rather than taking these things for granted, we'll see what it's like to sit with these people as they wait. Open up your Bible, if you've got it there. Luke chapter 1. It's the third of four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And so Luke is one of four men who write an eyewitness biography to the life of Jesus. And his account is actually unique in a whole bunch of ways. And one of those ways we see here in chapter 1. Uh, because you know he actually starts this this Christmas story, the Bible's account of Christmas, not with the nativity, or even with a woman on a donkey, or the birth of Jesus. He actually starts it with the birth of a different child, and so we meet the father of this child, whose name is Zechariah. And who is he? Why focus on this guy and just his one family? We'll take a look in verse five. Luke 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. So this guy, his job, Zechariah, was to intercede between God and people. And in so doing, he would help God's people worship him properly. And so this guy, Zechariah, as we read on, uh, he's a, a righteous man, says that he's blameless, just a way of saying that he was really devoted to God. Okay? But there's a problem for Zechariah and for his wife, Elizabeth. Maybe you caught it in the Bible reading. Take a look at verse 7. He was devoted to God and his people, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So they're both old. They've both been waiting a long time. And this is the first movement in this Christmas story about waiting. It's about waiting for a child. And this was a huge problem in the ancient world. You know, probably today, if, if there's a, a couple that don't have a kid, uh, we might sort of just go, oh, they decided not to have kids. Okay, sure. Some people decide that. That's okay. Um, but back then, not having a child brought massive shame on your family. Uh, at best, it meant that you had no one to carry on your family line. And that was a big thing, right? Your family name, your lineage, passing down. It's like you're the end of your family line. That brings shame. But also, 
it meant that you had no one to look after you when you were older. Think about that. There's no welfare, there's no Medicare, uh, there's no pension payment. So if you don't have you know, a bunch of kids when you get older, you're in trouble. <laughs> and that's at best. At worst, if you didn't have a child, then it sort of, well, people assumed that there was something really wrong with you. And not just like physically wrong, actually spiritually wrong. They assumed that, in fact, you'd done something so bad, so sinful, that God was punishing you. And this is why you couldn't have a child. And that is Zechariah and Elizabeth. Imagine that. See, I've known couples, of course, who have been through this, who've been through wanting desperately to have a child, waiting and waiting and praying and praying, but they just they can't conceive. Uh, actually, I've got close friends who waited for six years and did all the treatments and did all the stuff, and it was agony for them. It was almost all they ever thought about. Maybe you've been through that yourself. But imagine Zechariah and Elizabeth not just going through the agony of waiting for a child they want, but all the shame, all the feeling of unanswered prayer for years and years, decades and decades and decades. That's the problem in this story. They're waiting for a child. But now we follow Zechariah as he gets into his day at work. Right? We accompany him on a work day. And part of his job as a priest brings him to the temple in Jerusalem. And here there are a whole lot of other priests gathered. There's lots and lots of them. And, and today, one of them will be chosen to go into the temple. And what that priest is going to do, they're going to go inside, away from the crowd, away from the eyes of people, and they're going to pray for Israel, going to pray for God's people. They'll burn some incense so that God hears their prayer. They'll do this representing the people as the priest does. And out of all the gathered priests, Zechariah today is chosen to be the one to go inside the temple. Now, why is that? Why is Zechariah chosen? Is it because amongst all of those there, he's the most devoted? Is it because he's so sinless, so perfect, so devoted? Well, no, take a look at verse 9. Why is he chosen? Well, he's chosen by Lot, which isn't a guy's name in this case. He's chosen instead by like the roll of a dice, essentially. Let's just see who will go in. Oh, roll a dice. Oh, snake eyes. Zechariah, it's your turn. Okay, you go in. So it's just chance. Just chance. I mean, there's no such thing as chance, really. The Lord even controls the rolling of the dice, as we'll see. But from the people's perspective... Zechariah wasn't particularly special. He's just an ordinary guy chosen by chance to go inside the temple. But take a look at what happens in verse 11. This ordinary dude experiences something really quite extraordinary. Verse 11. And there appeared to him, as he's praying there, as he's burning incense inside the temple, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So this is an angel, a messenger from God, appearing to Zechariah. And how does he respond? He's afraid. He's scared out of his wits, which makes sense. He didn't wake up that morning going, I'm going to see an angel today. No one wakes up that way as long as they're sane. right? He comes into the temple. It's an ordinary day. He's an ordinary guy. And then suddenly, God sends a messenger this is extraordinary. He's scared out of his wits. But then the angel speaks to him. Verse 14. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for, and hear these words, your prayer has been 
heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now imagine hearing those words after decades of waiting and praying. Imagine that. Your prayer has been heard. And it's not like there's some invisible count-up number in the background, right? That Zechariah, every time he prays, it adds another number to the counter. And now, oh, like you've reached 3,000 times. And so this is the magic day when God hears your prayer. He's been ignoring you this whole point until you finally got devoted enough to get to this number. right? No, <laughs> that's not the case. What the angel is actually saying is, Zechariah, God has heard all of your prayer. He's heard every single time you've prayed. He's been with you. He cares about you. He loves you. He hears you. Today, your prayer has been heard. And even more than that, your prayer has been answered. You're going to have a child. Finally, after all these years of waiting. And again, it's not because Zechariah is special. It's not because he's super devoted and he's the best priest and the, the best of God's people. Because look at what happens next. right? Even though he's doing his best to obey God and he's devoted, he's a righteous man, after the angel tells him that he'll have a son, look at what he says in verse 18. Take a look. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man. and My wife is old. She's advanced in years. So translation... This is impossible. There's no way this can happen. No one's heard about something like this happening. We've waited so long. We're too old. And if this is really going to happen, I need proof right now. Which is probably how I'd respond <laughs> if this happened to me, honestly. Right? Where's the proof? And then the angel says that because Zechariah didn't believe what he said, then he'd be struck mute. He wouldn't be able to speak until nine months later when the child John is finally born. Which on the one hand uh, makes it pretty hard for him to explain you know, to all the other priests outside what's happened. <laughs> I don't know how good his sign language is. Sky's been, well, she's gone. I don't know where she's gone. But she's, uh, she's been learning sign language. She knows the sign for baby. I don't know the sign for angel. Maybe it's just flapping or something. So you can imagine Zechariah going out and trying to explain, like, angel and speak and baby. I don't know. Like, they have no idea what's going on. But on the other hand, right, this is a, uh, it shows us that he's not perfect. The sign that he's given is, Zechariah, you're going to be disciplined. You're going to be struck mute because you didn't trust what the Lord said. He's not perfect. He's not particularly special. And yet, God answers his prayer. And here's something we need to know. Right now, the Christmas story is obviously about more than Zechariah and Elizabeth having a baby. We know there's more to it than this. We'll get to that. But to God, here's what you need to hear. To God, this zoomed-in, micro-level problem for just one couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, matters immensely. It's the first account of Luke's gospel that he tells us. And that tells us something, doesn't it? God cares about every single person and the trials that they face. See, God doesn't just fulfill his plans for salvation, his big salvation history plan, somewhere out there, away from us. Actually, he does it through ordinary people in ordinary circumstances with quite ordinary problems. 
people like Zechariah and Elizabeth and you and me, in fulfilling his big plans to save all his people, God still cares about helping the individuals who are waiting for him. Now take encouragement from that. Take encouragement because especially if you've been praying and waiting for years for something. Now there's no guarantee that God will answer that prayer with a yes. There's no guarantee that he'll give you a child if you've been waiting for a child or a job if you've been waiting for a job or whatever. No guarantee. But what we learn from Zechariah and Elizabeth is that he does hear you. He does hear your prayer. He is with you. He will give you everything you need. And he does love you. Take encouragement from that. But as I said, the story is about more than this. It's more than just about waiting for a child. Really, the biggest story here is, Jacob, we can go to the next slide, bud, waiting for the child. Because outside the temple, where Zechariah hears this promise from God, there's a crowd. right? Some priests, some other gathered people. And I want you to look at verse 10. What are they doing? The whole multitude of people. Look there in your Bible. Take a look. Pick it up if it's on the seat next to you. Take a look. What are they doing? Verse 10. They're praying. They're praying. And we don't know exactly what they're praying for necessarily. It doesn't tell us, but we can imagine. They're praying for God to speak, right? They're praying for God to answer them as they cry out for salvation. Because from their perspective, they've been silent, or rather God has been silent for a long time. See, the last time that God spoke to his people was over 400 years before this. That's the last recorded uh, book of the Old Testament, the last time that God spoke through his prophets. And so for generation after generation after generation, he hadn't raised up another prophet. He hadn't inspired another writing of scripture. And so from the people's perspective, he'd been totally silent. And yes, like these people still had the Old Testament part of the Bible, right? All these books, 40 books, that, or 39 books that, that God had given to them and spoken to them. But the Old Testament was an unfinished story. The Old Testament was telling this story about how ultimately, actually, God was going to send a Messiah, a Savior, the Christ, who would save his people from their sins. One who would put an end to all the animal sacrifices. One who would put an end to people like Zechariah having to go into the temple and burn incense and represent them before God. They would have this Messiah as their representative. One who would put an end to the old way of living under a sinful heart and instead give his people a new heart saving them to God, into relationship with God. That's the story of the Old Testament. And yet 400 years earlier, just when people hoped that this salvation was coming, silence. Nothing. And it's like, you can imagine, you know, watching a, a series on Netflix or something like that, right? And you've gotten to the second last episode. And you're almost at the season finale. All the plot threads are starting to come together and you, you get to the end of that episode and you're thinking, what's going to happen next? And then right that very minute, Netflix pulls the show off the surface. Right? This happens from time to time. Like another competitor buys it, Stan or Amazon Prime or like Binge or something like that. They, they buy the, the, the show and it's gone. Netflix can't show it anymore. Imagine that happened right at the final episode. You don't get to see how it ends. How would you feel? You'd be like, well, I want to know. Where is it? And that's just with a show. Imagine these people waiting for the saviour. 
Where is he? We thought he was coming. They've been on this cliffhanger for 400 years. Imagine if that was you. Put yourself in their position. It's not just you who's been waiting your whole life. It's actually also your parents and their parents and their parents. I actually did the maths on this. It goes 13 generations back over 400 years. 13 generations. Twice the age of, of Anglo people being in Australia, basically. That's how long people have been waiting. We just don't have a reference point for that, do we? They've been waiting so long. And again, it's the very thing we take for granted. That God speaks to us anytime we want. That we've heard this great news of salvation through Jesus. But as Zechariah goes into the temple, the whole crowd of the people are there. They're waiting. They're praying for God to speak. And God answers their prayer. He speaks to Zechariah. He breaks the silence of 400 years, promising the birth of a child. This child, John. And through this child, he's going to begin to reveal his plan of salvation. Look again at verse 14. Once again, these are the angel's words. He says to call this child John. And then he says, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. See, it's not just the parents who will be happy about this kid. It's not just for them. He's actually... For all of God's waiting people, many will rejoice at his birth. And why? For he will be great before the Lord. He will be chosen to do great things by the Lord. In fact, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, something we probably take for granted today. Every believer in Christ is in fact filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, but back then, maybe one, maybe two people a generation. And just to do a specific thing that God had raised them up to do. Right? It was not the thing that all of God's people had the Holy Spirit in them. And so this child, John, breaks the silence, being filled with the Holy Spirit, raised up to carry on God's salvation plan. And of course, we know that this John, spoiler, he's going to turn into John the Baptist when he gets older. He's going to be preaching in the wilderness. Uh, and, and what will he do as he carries out this ministry? Well, verse 16 and verse 17 tell us. He'll turn the hearts of many Israelites who've wandered away from God. He'll turn many of their hearts back to God. And he'll turn people's disobedience into wisdom and justice, back into godly living. But that's not all. Actually, the most important thing he'll do is there in, right at the end of verse 17. Take a look. It says that he will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Prepared for what? Well, because God has now broken the silence, his salvation plan is continuing on, John's mission will be make, to make sure the people are ready for the Saviour, ready for the Messiah, ready for the Christ. In fact, after John is born, the Lord finally opens Zechariah's month, uh, mouth, it's been nine months, and he can finally speak, and one of the first things he says is this prophecy about what his son will do. Flip over to verse 76. Luke 176. So verse 67, he starts speaking the prophecy, but, but just jump down. Verse 76, he says this about John. He says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, 
to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So notice that this child, John, he's not the one who will actually bring salvation. It's not his advent, his arrival, that is the big news for everyone. Okay? He actually is the one who's going to bring knowledge of salvation. Do you see that there? In verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So he's going to, it's like he's pointing the way. He's the one, a signpost pointing to the one who brings salvation. Or to pick up uh, the language that, that Zechariah uses, it's like he's pointing at the sunrise. It's been this period of darkness in human history and now he's pointing saying, look, here comes the light, the Saviour coming like a sunrise. The light in the darkness, the night is over. He'll bring light to those who are in the darkness of their sin, their rebellion against God. For those who sit under the shadow of death and God's coming judgment for their sin, he finally, the sunrise comes, the Saviour comes. And this language is actually really rich in Old Testament allusion. Zechariah being a Jewish priest and a very devout one, he of course knows these things. And so flip back with me if you can to Isaiah chapter 9. Kind of a little bit past the, uh, the midway point of your Bible. Isaiah chapter 9. Take a look at verse 2. Remember, God had been silent for 400 odd years but actually 600 years before Zechariah had been around, God did speak. He spoke these words. 600 years before John came, before this Saviour came. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You hear the echo there, right? The echo of Zechariah's words. And then verse 6 tells us even more about this light. This light, this sunrise in the darkness, is actually a child. Verse 6, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And not just any son. In fact, this can't be John. Because look at what this son is like. The government, the rule of everything will be on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A child who is himself God, a child who brings peace. Who else could this be talking about? <laughs> of course, it's talking about Jesus, Jesus Christ. And don't miss the fact that these words were written 600 years before Jesus ever walked the earth. See, don't miss the significance of that. Some people sometimes think that Christians believe what they do because it's just like, Wishful thinking, right? I hope it's true. Some people might even think that folk like Zechariah and Elizabeth and, and all of Luke writing the gospel just sort of made this up because they hoped that it would be true. They, wishful thinking, but no. These people actually saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises God made in the Old Testament. They drew a line back to these words written 600 plus years earlier and went, this is the one objectively, he is the one that is coming to save. This is fulfilled prophecy. Come back to, to Luke with me, Luke chapter 1. Try to imagine 
being in Zechariah's position. Right? Imagine not only the birth of your child, John, but actually this foretelling of the child, the Saviour, Jesus Christ, the one that everyone's been waiting for, for a very long time, and now it's happening. It's really happening. Imagine the people's excitement. In fact, over in chapter 2 in Luke, we actually meet two people who've been waiting for this day. Look at verse 25. One of them is named Simeon here. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. He was a man who was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for God to come and comfort his people with salvation. And this particular day, the Holy Spirit leads Simeon to the temple and there, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus. This is after Jesus has been born, right? They bring Jesus to the temple and Simeon and Jesus cross paths. And he is absolutely stoked because he suddenly recognizes in the Holy Spirit who this child is. And he's so full of joy, look in verse 29, that he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. He's literally saying, I can die now. <laughs> I'm so stoked about this. I can die. I'm done. Right? Like, this is it. It doesn't get any better. I can die a happy man. That's his excitement. Now, I don't know if I've ever felt that happy in my life. But Simeon feels that in this moment. He's waited and waited, and now the light of the world is here. He's not the only one. Verse 36, we meet a woman, Anna, a prophetess. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. So just get the picture of this. Probably she married young, and then her husband died seven years later. And now she's very old. And since that time, seven years after she was married, till now, she's had no husband. And here, Luke could point out that she was waiting for a husband. But he doesn't. Actually, he points out that she was waiting for the redemption of Israel. That's the biggest thing that she's been waiting for all her years. She's been fasting and praying at the temple. It says there, every day. Think about something you do every day, like, like brushing your teeth. It takes two minutes. We do it because it's important and we have to. But she's going, she's fasting, she's denying herself food and going to the temple and spending hours praying every single day, waiting for the Savior to come, waiting for God to break his silence. So imagine how she felt when she saw that Jesus was here. We don't have to imagine. Verse 38, coming up to that very hour, she began to give thanks to God. Like she pours out thanks to God and then she speaks of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. She goes, she can't help telling everyone. Get a, a feeling for this excitement. The one we're waiting for is finally here. Now what if we could capture some of that today? What if we could have some measure of that excitement and joy and confidence? But the reality is, if we're honest, we don't often feel that way, do we? We don't often. We tend to take these things for granted. But the key to experiencing the joy of this true story is gripping the implication of this story. And it's a simple one. Here's the implication. This is it. 
given what we've seen in today's passages, gives us a lot to be thankful for. Here's the implication. We don't have to wait for God to speak and save. That's it. Simple. I could have started off the sermon just telling you that, right? And you go, yep, I get it. Done. But the reason that we tell this story, the reason that we go through all the beats, is because sometimes we actually need to sit with the people who are waiting to realize what we're taking for granted, right? We sit with the people who've been waiting for centuries so that we feel the implications of not having to wait anymore. While the people we've met today look forward to Jesus coming, we actually look back to the fact that he has come. And I think you see this contrast so vividly if we just flick to one more place in chapter 24 of Luke's Gospel. Just flip right to the end. This is after Jesus has grown up, after he's carried out his public ministry and he's been crucified. Little do his disciples know, but he's also been raised from the dead. It's been three days since he died. And one day, two of his disciples are walking along a road discussing all of this with each other. So they're discussing the fact that, you know, Jesus, he lived and we followed him, but then he died. Huh. And then the risen Lord Jesus actually comes and walks beside them, but they don't recognize him because they didn't think that he was going to be raised from the dead. And he asks them what they're talking about. Verse 17, chapter 24, verse 17, they stop still and they look gloomy. They're sad. Jesus asks why. And then they say, well, because we've been discussing how Jesus was killed. They don't know it's him. We've been discussing how this man we've been following, we thought with the Savior, he's been killed. And they say in verse 21, hear the sadness of these words, but we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They devoted years of their life to following this man. We had hoped. And this is what it's like to be waiting still for God to save. You don't, you don't have it yet. You're just waiting. And how many people today are still waiting and hoping for some kind of salvation? Right? Like maybe they hope they'll have some kind of experience that'll connect them with God or a higher power or something else out there. They're just waiting for that. Or they're they sort of hope they'll do enough good things to right the wrongs of this world or perhaps the wrongs of their past. They're waiting. Or perhaps they'll get enough money or the right relationship or whatever. They'll get enough respect. That they finally feel at peace, like that salvation sense for them. They're still waiting. And none of those hopes will ever pay off. They'll leave you still waiting. Much like the disciples here, when they thought they were still waiting in the Savior, for the Savior, and they stood there gloomy. We had hoped. But thankfully, they were wrong. (laughs) After talking with Jesus for a while, they suddenly actually recognize him. This is Jesus, the risen one, raised from the dead. And when that happens, they go from gloomy to being filled with joy. If you look at the very last couple of verses of Luke's gospel, verse 52, here's those same, same disciples. Look how much they've changed. See, after Jesus has has shown himself risen and then ascends from them, they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, look at that picture. The start of Luke's gospel, you have someone like Simeon and Anna 
praying and fasting in the temple, desperately hoping that the Saviour will come. Here, you have the disciples going back to Jerusalem, back to the temple. The Saviour has come. And are they desperate anymore, waiting? No, they're worshipping. They're filled with joy because they know the Saviour's here. They don't need to wait anymore. God has broken the silence. The Saviour's come. And that can be us as well. We can have that same joy, the same thankfulness, the same confidence because Jesus really did live and did die for our sins and did rise again, proving himself to be the Son of God. We're not still waiting for the Saviour. This is just objective historical reality. He's come. You can bank your life on it. He's the one who's fulfilled the Old Testament promises. He's the one who's come to save. And so everyone who responds to this Saviour by trusting Him, believing that He died in their place, taking on their sin, taking the judgment of God that they deserve, they don't need to wait to be saved. They don't need to wait to be made right with God. They don't need to wait for the joy and peace that comes from knowing where we stand for eternity. In that sense, Christians are not awaiting people. We are awaiting people in other ways. We're, of course, waiting for Jesus to return, right? We're waiting. In that sense, Christmas points us both backwards and forwards. But we don't have to wait in the same way that Zechariah did or God's people did over 2,000 years ago. The desperate longing and hoping, is it going to happen? He's come. He has spoken. He has saved. And it's worth reflecting on that this Advent season when we are so prone to taking these things for granted, taking the child for granted, taking our saviour for granted. might even encourage you just as we go through Luke 1 and 2 this next couple of weeks, uh, you might want to just read this through each week to yourself sometime during the week. You might even read it a couple of times and just sit with God's people as they wait. See what emotions that brings up for you. Uh, See what kind of prayer that brings up for you. Uh, See what kind of thankfulness, confidence, joy, whatever might come up for you as you spend time in God's word reflecting on what life was like before Jesus came and what life is now like, that we have Jesus. But it does also bring us to one final question behind the whole story, which is simply this. Do you know the Saviour? Do you know him yourself? Do you trust him yourself? Are you following him? Or are you still waiting, actually, for salvation of some kind? Are you still searching, but not yet actually entrusting your life to Jesus? Not yet clinging to him by faith, trusting that he came to save you through his life, death, and resurrection? Because remember, in the big story of God sending a saviour, he cares about the ordinary people. The people who fail, the people who sin, the people who don't yet trust him. He cares about people like Zechariah and Elizabeth. He cares about you and wants to save you. It's very possible to experience the joy and confidence of the people we see in the scriptures. It comes by trusting and following Jesus. And so I urge you to turn to him today in trust and thankfulness, whether for the first time or the thousandth. This is our advent, the arrival of our saviour. Let's pray. Lord, as we reflect on your coming, please do fill us with confidence, joy, thankfulness. The things that that we often lack, 
And Lord, we confess we lack. But look upon us, Lord, weary sinners. And fill us, Lord, with the truth. Fill us with the joy that comes from knowing the truth. The word of God has come. Our Savior Jesus, we praise you. What a great Savior we have. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to reflect on the greatness of our Savior now as we share in communion. So uh, the bread, or rather the crackers and the, the juice are going to come round.